Well, Pastor Brandon and I had some fun last week talking about this chapter, didn't didn't we? It's, he was throwing it to me, and then I kind of reconsidered, should I do it or not do it? And uh, I've decided to go ahead and do it so that uh, he won't have to, because it is uh, certainly something where you can see Paul writing to a group of believers about some very uh, interesting subjects and trying to figure out why in the world would he be writing to them in such great detail uh, was kind of the challenge I had during the week, so I'll try to bring some of that to you. But we ended last week the first section of 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Let's just refresh our memory. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you not know you're the temple of God? The word temple is used five times in 1 Corinthians. But it's interesting that two different words are used, and they're used in a different way. In chapter 3, when it was talking about you are the temple, it was a plural word talking about you. All of you are the ones that um, are there. And so you Corinthians, it was talking to the corporate church. But here, the word that's used is singular. You, the reader of this letter. So it's quite a change. The word is Huron in chapter 3, which is the temple or some place to come and worship. But the word is Naos here in chapter 6, which is the holy of holies. So it's interesting that at this point, Paul seems to be transitioning into a much more personal conversation with the people. Note that it says that the Holy Spirit is in you and that he came from God. Back in the first chapter... We saw some things that I thought were important for us to bring out that in chapter one, verse four, the grace that we have was given to us by God. Then in verse five, we were enriched in all things by him, by Jesus. And in chapter four, verse seven, what do you have that you did not receive from him? What do you have that you did not receive from him? We'd like to say everything that we have. We received from him. God created us. Jesus redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit indwells us. Therefore, you are not your own. You have no rights to your own body. Your body is created as the temple of God to please the Lord. Bought with a price. Redeemed. So chapter 6 ends with that kind of a. Of a, of a conversation that Paul's having with the people. But the first part, these first six chapters, were devoted to the sins of the church. Remember all the problems that have been pointed out as we've read and as we've studied? There were divisions. There were disputes. There was immorality. There was worldliness. And there was carnality. And all of those things were talked about in the first six chapters. And how did those things come to be a part of the church? You see, the people of Corinth were babes in Christ. They were not growing up in the Lord. They had their eyes on men. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Not on Christ. They were feeding on milk and not the meat, the word, the meat of the word. And they failed to admit their sin and deal with it. They were still living in it. 
they were not glorifying God in their body and their spirit, which Paul is now saying they belong to God, your body and your spirits. So you are the temple of God, very personal, the inner holy place. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own. And now what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for the directness of your word through the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, but also to us. Lord, help us to glean from this, study the things that you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 7 starts out with a new word, which we're going to see a few times. Now concerning, now concerning this. And this is a, a reference to the fact that Paul is now going to start to specifically answer questions that he was given. This happens in chapter 7. It happens at the beginning of chapter 8. Now concerning these things uh, given to idols, chapter 12, verse 1, he's answering another question. Uh, now concerning spiritual gifts. Then in chapter 16, verses 1 and 12, he does the same thing. Now concerning these things. He's going to answer their questions now concerning the collection of the saints in Jerusalem and now concerning our brother Apollos. So Paul is now answering a series of questions that were sent to him by the people. He's going to talk about in the seventh chapter marriage, celibacy, and then later he'll answer those other questions. Meat offered to idols about Apollos, about spiritual gifts and about collections for the people in Jerusalem. Just to refresh your memory, Paul had left the Corinthian church under the uh, direction of Aquila and Priscilla in A.D. 53 to continue his second missionary journey. On the third journey, he received these letters when he was at Ephesus. One of them was very disturbing, and a report came to him from the household of Cleo. We read that in chapter 1. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Cleo's house, that there are contentions among you. Now, isn't it interesting as we look at the book of Corinthians that we could say, thank goodness that's all been over with and dealt with because it doesn't exist in the church today. There are no contentions. There's no divisions. There's nobody going around saying, well, I'm of Macintosh and I'm of Corson and I'm still a Chuck guy. There's none of that in, in our Calvary movement, is there? Don't we sometimes do those types of things where we don't necessarily mean to, but we want to? But this report that came to Paul, it detailed immorality in the church, things that were going on, problems because the Corinthian church had come from a very immoral culture of what was happening. I'll talk about that in a minute. The immaturity of the Corinthian people had given way to these divisions. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. I'm of Christ. I'm not of any man. Some of them were saying their desire was to sue each other. They were bringing each other to court and to the public court and not handling it within the church. And that was something that showed again their immaturity. And then again, sexual immorality had become a problem in the church because of the culture that they were living in. So the second letter of Paul is to answer the questions. Corinth, the city was the capital of the providence of Acacia for the Romans. It was a very important city, strategically located at the uh, isthmus at the bottom of, the, uh, of Macedonia at that time, a major trade route for the region. 
uh, a great commercial city, very prosperous. In about the 8th century, it was the fourth largest city in the world. So it had been a very prominent city full of uh, Greeks and then Romans. In 46 BC, Julius Caesar built the city and made it a strategic location for the Roman government because of that strategically. But at the time of Paul, the population is Greeks, Romans, Orientals, and Jewish people. Many businessmen and many Roman government officials were in the city. And it was also being visited many, many times by Roman um, hierarchies and emperors, including Nero himself had come to Corinth. On the plateau above it where the temple of Aphrodite was, there were a thousand prostitutes that would come down every day into the city to do their worship and to collect fees for the, um, for the priests that were in the temple. That was the um, culture that the city was. Even in the pagan world, Corinthians was talked about as a bad city. So because of the commercial nature of the city, the many cultures that were present, the city was known for its lasciviousness. And the lasciviousness is one of those terms we don't talk about much, but it was their wantonness display, outward action, in your face kind of, we're going to do it whether you like it or not. And sometimes I look at our country and I see things that are going on around in our country where it's like we're going to go out there and we're going to cross the line, we're going to push the envelope so far whether you like it or not, we're going to do that. That's what lasciviousness has behind it. Uh, it's that, that's that type of uh, thing given to immoral practices. So let's read the first part of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift, and from God one is in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." Very possible and probable that Paul had been married. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he had a great respect for the law, including the Jewish Talmud, which was an expansion of the law of God with 613 other regulations. And the very first one is you must be married and have offspring. So if that's the case, if he was a Pharisee and a part of the Sadducee, which it seems from Scripture that he is, then he probably was married. Nothing in Scripture that tells us what happened, whether his wife died, whether she left him because of his newfound faith, or whatever happened, we don't know. But Paul, at one time, was probably married. So he's speaking to this condition and this situation with some experience. In verse 1... 
the word for good would be better translated honorable or morally right. So it's honorable sometimes not to touch a woman, he wrote. In verse 2, rather than being immoral, get married. Remember that we're in Corinth, in, in the city of Corinth. Homosexuality, polygamy were very common. Have your own wife, have your own husband. And instead of not touching a woman in marriage, husbands and wives render affection to each other. King James says, use the word, uses the word benevolence to each other. NIV says, fulfill your marital duties. And so this is so much more than just sexual relations. You know, if it was just sexual relations, it would be probably easy to handle. It's, it's I love you, not you owe me. It's romance. It's rendering affection. And likewise, the wife to the husband. So both are to do that, render affection. This is due to each other, and it's not based on your deeds. It's not with, well, gee, you were sweet to me today. You were nice. You did what I asked you to do, so I'm going to reward you. That's not the, the attitude we're supposed to have in our relationships with each other as husbands and wives. We are to render affection. I like the study that the couples are doing right now. The five, langu- five love languages of God. Of, uh, uh, the five languages of. Love the five love languages, period. Okay. Um, affirmation. Honey, you're beautiful. That's important stuff for us to say. Acts of service. Gifts. Quality time. And physical touch. So it's not just the one thing that it seems like Paul could be talking about here, but it's so much more than that for us as husbands and wife. You can read more about this in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 and Colossians chapter 3 if you want to know more about this marriage relationship. But it says in verse 4 that you don't have authority over your own body. And this is the idea that you're to be giving to each other. You don't have power or control. It's an equality and it's mutual. In verse 5 it says do not deprive except for prayer and fasting. The Jewish law prohibited um, intimacy at certain times. There were certain uh, feast days and certain holidays that they were not allowed to have intimacy. And some were taking celibacy to a point of extremes. Even in marriage. So this is a door where the enemy could work. If a couple would come together and say, let's fast and pray. and Let's really be dedicated to our children for a while. And they gave up this relationship, their physical relationship for a while. That can only be by consent. It can only be for a short period of time that Satan doesn't have a way to say this. Paul says in verse 6, I'm saying this by permission and not by command. In other words, Paul's giving his opinion. He's giving his direction. Uh, Some of what Paul is just that. It's his opinion. It's the way he feels about it. Other times he's speaking with the authority that's given to him by the Lord as an apostle. Some might even say when you read verse 7, For I wish that all men were even as myself, which was basically single at this time, that Paul is against marriage. But if you read Ephesians 5, it's clear that he wasn't against marriage. He gave some very detailed and important marriage instructions for us. Paul considers celibacy a gift, but he says it's not for everyone. 
Let each one have his own gift. And so to the unmarried and the widow, he says, if it's possible to you, you're not married now, you're a widow, remain just as I am. And Paul went through so much in his travels, you can see why he would say that. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. Could you imagine going through that, guys, if you had a wife at home? If you had a family to be worrying about? That would be almost impossible to be going through that, wondering what your wife... I'm putting your wife under that pressure. She's wanting to know where you are, what's happening to you, whether you're being beaten again or not. Later in the chapter, um, Paul uh, points out one of the things that I think makes all this so important to him is that he really believed the Lord was coming right away. So asking you to be single for a while was not such a big deal. It wasn't like be single for the rest of your life because the Lord's coming next week. And so his request was not an abnormal or unreasonable request. Uh, Verse 9, but if not, get married better than the consequences. And so Paul would say to get married is better than having sex outside of marriage and paying the consequence for that. In verses 10 and 11, he starts to indicate he is answering another question. Verse 10 And now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul also changes and speaks now for the Lord. It's not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife, period. Paul is speaking to the married. When both are Christians, later he speaks to what? To the situation where only one is a Christian. He's telling them you can't leave marriage to become more spiritual. And that seems to be one of the things that Paul is looking at. That some people were actually saying, I want to be like you, Paul. You're saying you wish I was like you, so I want to divorce my wife so I can go on the road with you and go be a minister. Well, that's not right. And he's saying there's no way for that. So how can Paul speak for the Lord? By knowing his written word. You know, we can speak for the Lord too if we know his word. We can say the word of God says... We don't have to say my opinion is. We can say Jesus taught this if we know his word well enough. Paul knew this from Genesis chapter 2. In the very beginning, God said, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should live alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed it and up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, the two shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And he knew what it said in Malachi chapter 2. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. No matter what the circumstances are of divorce, he hates it. He doesn't want it to be happening. 
I bet you that Paul also knew what Jesus taught on divorce in Matthew chapter 19. You can read that on your own. The first eight, eight verses talks about that. So what about divorce? When will God recognize it or allow it? You know what? He never approves it or desires it, even in the cases where he allows it, even in the case of unfaithfulness, and even in the case of a non-believer leaving a believer. God's desire is never for divorce. From Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, we see that one permission is sexual immorality of the partner. The other is the one that's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. God still would prefer that they stay together and they'd be reconciled. All other reasons are not recognized. Irreconcilable differences. We've grown apart. They, he just doesn't understand me anymore. I've lost that love and feeling. And so on. There are no other reasons for divorce. God hates divorce. Jesus said, if these invalid reasons you divorce, then you're committing adultery when you remarry or marry someone who has divorced for these reasons. It is a horrible sin. It's immorality and it has consequences. For those of you who have been married before and remarried, I want you to know something. It is not the unpardonable sin. Okay, It is something that God can take and he can bless. Then in verses 10 and 11, he talks about celibacy. And the same thing was going on in the Corinthian church. Because Paul was saying to be single was a great thing. Some people wanted to become single. I wish you were like me. I'm celibate now. I wish you could be like me. So inside of marriage, some of the people were saying, I'm going to be celibate like Paul. And I'm going to go down to the church and be a deacon. Or I'm going to go be an elder. I'm going to go be a leader. And in order to do that, I want to be celibate. Well, you can't do that in marriage. Paul had just explained that you can't do it. So in verses 12 to 16, Paul goes on and says, I am talking to you, not the Lord. So let's look at those verses, starting with verse 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving departs, let them depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. For now, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and I will ordain it in all of the churches. Paul, again, is giving his opinion. Don't get the idea that this is not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's just that Paul didn't have a reference that he could lay down for them. This is, what, this is this just not what Jesus had taught. Maybe he's referring back to Matthew 19. Paul was also dealing with another issue, and that was this divorcing or becoming celibate in marriage. 
so they could be more spiritual or more of a servant. Almost a form of Gnosticism by saying, my abstaining, my divorcing is a spiritual thing and I'm growing like that. He deals with a mixed marriage where one's a believer and one's not. The Old Testament law forbid marriage outside of your religion. You couldn't get married if you're supposed to be Jew to Jew. You weren't supposed to marry outside of the, of the Jewish faith. So in 2 Corinthians, we read this. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Baal? Or what part has he that believeth with an infidel? Lord Almighty. We were instructed, Paul was instructing, telling people, if you're a Christian, marry another Christian. Marry somebody of like faith. So he's gone through this thing. There's an old Puritan proverb that says it well. If you are a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you are going to have problems with your father-in-law. <laughs> and you could actually say it both ways. If you're a child of God and you marry a child of the devil... You're both going to have problems with your father-in-laws because the Lord's going to be pursuing the child of the devil and the enemy is going to be pursuing the child of God. So Paul says, first, if you are married to an unbeliever, don't separate or divorce. But if it does happen, it happens. But you might sanctify them. You might bring them to a place of salvation, a place where they could be set apart or they might be concentrate, consecrated in the marriage, a place of of privilege. I think we saw that when we looked at the Philippian jailer, when Paul and Silas sang their way out of prison, we read in Acts 16, what the jailer asked of them. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all were in the house. And he took them the same hour by night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Because you're married to a non-believer doesn't mean that that's going to bring them to a place of being saved just because of the relationship. But when Paul was the believer in that jail, the jailer, he showed the jailer... Um, shows that the non-believer, the jailer, the love of Christ, Paul wasn't sitting in there whining. He wasn't sitting in there complaining, but he was in there singing psalms and praising the Lord. And they almost always turn to the Lord when you're in that situation. If you are in a situation where somebody is um, in any kind of relationship, it could be friendships. It could be this situation of one, one believer married to a non-believer. If you are faithful to the things of God, you will almost always win the other person to the Lord. What about the children mentioned there in verse 14, part B? Uh, Sanctify the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but, how, but now they are holy. It seems that they are holy. From the Greek, the word is sanctified. It also translates saints. Remember back in chapter 1 of this book, we were called to be saints. You are all called saints. Paul starts out by calling us, you were called to be a saint, Corinthians. Even though the Corinthians have lots of problems, Paul knows that they were called to be saints. You know the story of the Old Testament of David and Bathsheba, where Nathan had come and he exposed the sin. 
David repented, but his son died. Often we may repent. Often we may be forgiven, but we still may have to pay the consequences of our sin. In 2 Samuel, he answered those who questioned him. You remember the scene. The baby died and his servants came up to him and said, Hey, when your baby was sick, you were wailing, you were praying, you were fasting, you were doing all these things. Now that he's dead, you're getting cleaned up and you're putting on your robes and you're starting to act normal. Why? And he said to them, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell where the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. And why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David knew that he was going to see that infant baby that died. That first baby of David and Beersheba's. So that baby somehow had righteousness. Somehow he was being ushered in to heaven. Because David knew that he was going to see him in eternity. So that's, David knows that his eternal future, he will see his son. So that brings me to just talk a little bit about what is called sometimes the age of accountability. When a child is able to know right from wrong, to discern good and evil, to understand the gospel. I believe it's different for every individual. I think some kids get it much earlier than others, but I think that everyone has that age. So I think it's interesting that as a child is with believing parents, It seems that they are somehow sanctified or protected or set apart for that process of salvation in their own life. I don't think it's talking about that they're saved because of the parents' relationship, but I think that they're being set apart for that. We can be sure, we can't be sure, but we can be sure God is merciful and full of grace. If they are saved, it's not because they're innocent, because all are born into sin as children of Adam. They are saved because of the mercy and the grace of God. They are not saved because of the acts of their parents. So it's something that we probably can't answer here tonight. One of those questions we're going to ask Jesus when we get to heaven. What about that six-year-old kid? What about that four-year-old kid that had this situation come up? And then in verse 15, as we said earlier, the non-believer leaves the believer um, There's no other way around it. The believer may not. So the believer is not to leave the non-believer. The only thing that can happen is the non-believer to leave the believer. But if they do, then the believer is not under bondage, and that believer is free to remarry. In verse 16, Paul ends this section with hope. Hope for the believing spouse. Many are discouraged in this situation, but with faith and patience, they can look to God for to work it out. I can remember as a little kid, Going to church on Easter, going to church on Christmas were the only times dad came with mom and I. And my dad was raised in a big Italian Catholic family, one of 13 kids. Cousin was the Archbishop of Brooklyn, so really kind of set in his way, Italian. Uh, from His parents were from Sicily, so I mean there was a lot of tradition. And so he just wouldn't come to church with us. And um, he was 64, 65, and um, things were happening at Calvary. A lot of stuff was going on. We were going to church all the time. And we asked Dad to go, and he just wouldn't go. But he'd come on Easter, and he'd come on on, uh, on uh, Christmas and stuff like that. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I got a copy of Good News for Modern Man, which was a paraphrase back in the day, kind of like a New Living Testament. And I got one that was stamped by the Archbishop of um, Los Angeles, I think it was Mahoney or one of those guys that was um, 
okay to read. And I gave it to my son. I said, Dad, don't try to figure it out. Just read this. And one day, coming down the hallway, he says, Mike, I think I get it. He's in John chapter 4. He just finished chapter 3. I got it. He says, it's not me, it's God. And he accepted the Lord, took him next door to the neighbor's house and baptized him. And it was the faithfulness of my mom's prayers that brought him to she never, We never criticized him. We never made him feel bad. But it was that faithfulness of her prayer. So if you know people who are living with unbelievers, help them, encourage them, tell them, look, these verses say that you just hang in there and you keep praying. And you got to, you know, it's, it's tough because you don't want to live, well, I'm holier than you, I'm super righteous, and you're a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not going to help that person to come to see you. You have to be better than what they expect you to be as a Christian. You have to be close to perfect. You don't have the, the freedom in that situation to lose your temper or to slip and fall every other week uh, at a party and do things like that. You need to really be tight with that thing. So he ends this section with a hope. Now, verse 17, I think is an important verse for us in this whole chapter. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. The Lord has called each one of us to a different walk, a different place of ministry, different things that we're going to do. And so as the Lord calls you, do it. Let him walk or live out their life, whatever your situation. If you're single, be single and do that ministry. If you're married, be married. If you're a widow or widower, stay that way and do your work. If you're divorced, still you can be called in that. If you're remarried, be called in that. God can and will work in your life no matter what your circumstances are. The important part that is ours is so walk. It says, so let us walk. Do what you have to do. Notice there too that it says it's God has distributed It's the Lord who calls you, and we are to walk in that gift. That's a calling. The word for ordain there is to institute or prescribe. So Paul is saying to the people that he's writing to, if you're you're single, walk in this way. If you're married, walk in this way. And he gives two examples in the next few verses, circumcision and slaves and free people. And Paul was a prisoner. So it's interesting that now he's going to take two things that were very um, much part of the culture of what was going on in the church and in society at that time, talking about circumcision, because, you know, as we've looked in Galatians, there was a whole argument about whether you had to be circumcised or not circumcised. In Galatians chapter 3, we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all in Christ. And he preached, he he repeats it, let each one of us remain. Uh, Verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So Paul wasn't undermining the law. The law was 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 important. In verse 20, he says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. With Paul, there were only two groupings of people, believers and non-believers. In the church, there were Jews and Gentiles. There were rich and poor. There were free men and there were slaves. 
There were married and there were unmarried. There were more spiritual and less spiritual. And Paul is always talking about not having those types of divisions. So he ends this section in verse 24. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. While the last section, verses 20 to 24, deals with slave versus free, free, what a powerful affirmation that is not the circumstances, but it's grace. It's not whether you're a free person. It's not whether you're a slave. It's where you are that God can, through his grace, use you. God's grace that brings us to sainthood. Remember that Paul addressed in the beginning of the thing that he, you are called to be saints. He wants you to be saints. So whether you're married or not, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're circumcised or not, in either of these cases, the situation should not affect your sainthood. If you're employed or unemployed, it shouldn't affect the way that you live your life. If you're um, married or unmarried, all the things that we've been talking about. In fact, sainthood should always impact or change your place. Because you're a Christian, wherever you go out into society, where you go out to culture, if you're in school, if you're at work, wherever you go, you should change yourself. So he says in verse 24 there, remain in the state you're in. I think the ladies say, bloom where you're planted. Wherever it is that you're supposed to be, bloom where you're planted. Whatever it is that you're doing, do it to the best you can. I think we can become slaves to men. Not just literal slaves, but I think spiritual slaves. Remember one of those the great divisions that was going on is, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of these different things. And we all have our favorites. I still love to listen to Pastor Chuck. I love his voice. I love the simplicity he teaches the word of God. I love that stuff. I love sometimes to put on an old Chuck Missler tape and drive myself crazy trying to figure out what he's talking about. <laughs> I love that. Sometimes it's a lot of fun. Sometimes I put on a Corson CD or an MP3. And I said, John, where did you get that? You know, because he likes to spiritualize it so much. And so we, so we have all these things. You listen to Raul Reese and you say, like Chuck used to say, always of Raul Reese. He gets the story all wrong. He tells the story, Bible story, and it's all wrong. And 150 people come forward. I tell a story and I nail it. Every single thing is right. I get the whole story down pat and one person raises their hand. That's just a thing of God. It's just a thing that the way things are. But we have to be careful that we don't get so sometimes wrapped up with a particular person or have a bent for that person that that sways us. Because there's many people that have an opportunity to teach. In the men's group and the ladies' group, I love what we do. There's, I don't know, six, seven teachers in the ladies' groups, and they get up. And so you're hearing from a different variety of people. That's such a wonderful thing for the Holy Spirit to use. In our men's ministry, we have different people that are getting up and giving the lessons and stuff like that. And so the Holy Spirit can use it. In our Bible colleges, sometimes we have people come in and do a class for us. And so that's a great thing. Spurgeon had some thoughts on this. And so let me read you what Spurgeon said. We must never put ourselves under the inappropriate control... Or the influence of others. Inappropriate control or influence of others. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible yourself. 
Come prepared to Sunday nights. Come prepared to Bible college. Come prepared to um, the couples ministry. Come to prepared to men's if, if we're going through a study. It's important for you to come prepared because you shouldn't have any inappropriate control or influence of others. Do not follow even good men slavishly. Do not say, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Calvin. Or I am of Wesley. Did Calvin redeem you? Did Wesley die for you? Who is Calvin and who is Wesley? But ministers by whom you believe as the Lord gave unto you. Do not so surrender yourself to any leadership that you rather follow the man than the master. I will follow anybody if he goes Christ's way, but I will follow nobody by the grace of God if he does not go in that direction. Charles Spurgeon. In verses 25 to 28, Paul's advice, marriage isn't bad in the sight of God, but singleness has its advantages. This is no commandment of the Lord, and he did, and, and, as he did when he talked about divorce back in verse 10. In that day, parents arranged marriages. And that was something, you know, that may have been a good thing, but that was what was happening. When he talks about virgins here, he's not talking about virginity. He's talking about young children. He's talking about, about offspring. And parents were trying to keep their children from being married so they could serve the Lord if they were involved in the church. They were trying to push that. And, he, and he's telling them, no, 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 don't do that. If they want to get married, if that's what's happening, let them get married and let them serve in that direction. Whatever place they're in, let them serve. In verses 29 to 31, Paul warns about putting down deep roots in the world that is passing away. And this is that passage which I think you needed to see and understand, to really understand what Paul is trying to say here. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice in, as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as those who did not possess. And those who use the world as the misuse those and those who use this world as not misusing it for the form of this world is passing away. I believe that Paul's trying to say here that, hey, time is short. So he's talking to the Corinthians just like we talk today. We expect the rapture of the church at any time. We expect that, you know, we look around the world. We look at our nation. We look at the church. We see things happening that we just can't believe. The Lord has to be coming soon. So in your state, single people, serve the Lord. You're in your state, married people, serve the Lord. In whatever state you're in, serve the Lord and do it. Time is short. In verses 32 to 35, the unmarried have the potential to please God with less distractions. Paul remained, remained unmarried, so he devoted himself completely to the service of Christ. A wife or a family of Paul would have suffered after, when you read the book of Acts, you would have said, wow, I'm glad I wasn't married to that guy. Could you imagine getting the letters from Paul saying, honey, everything's fine. I spent three days in the deep. I got beat. I've been in jail. I've been beaten 39 stripes a couple times. But uh, I'll be home soon. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, how hard that would have been. In verses 36 to 38, Paul talks about family arranged marriages. Don't just follow the crowd. They must be convincing marriage is best when he's talking to them. 
Verse 36. But if any man thinks uh, that he is uh, behaving improperly towards his young, his young female daughter, if she has passed the flower of youth, even if she's older and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has the power over his own will and has no determination to his heart that he will keep his young, young daughter uh, does well as well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Again, so that she can, she can serve. And then in verses 39 to 40, a final reminder regarding widows and remarriage. Free to marry if the husband dies, but happier if she remains single. Verse 38. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the spirit of God. Again, because Paul thinks that time is short. He's saying it's better for that widow to remain a widow and to serve the Lord than to get married and try to continue in service. So, Paul, a lot of practical instructions to those people of things that were going on. I believe that early in that early church that actually people were saying, I want to get divorced so I can go serve the Lord. Or I want to be celibate with you so I can go serve the Lord better. And those, of course, were things Paul was speaking against. So a lot of uh, interesting things in the seventh chapter. Um, I don't know if I'm going to email Brandon and say we did it or I did a topical study instead and let him <laughs> let him worry until he gets home. But I'll be good. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does have application for us today. We thank you, Lord, that um, you can speak to us. And Lord, I pray that for maybe someone tonight that they realize that where they are, they can blossom. Where they are, they can serve. Where they are, they can be used. And Lord, I pray that the enemy would not use people's past, people's current situations to keep us from getting engaged in the work that you've called us to. And so, Lord, if there's someone that needs to be freed from a, a hindrance tonight, this would be a great time to free them to serve right in the place where they are. So, Lord, we ask you to minister the word to us in Jesus' name. Amen.